turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we'll talk with Justin Boggy. He is a senior policy analyst in fiscal affairs at the Grover Herman Center for the Federal Budget at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about how your taxes are spent. Today is, yes, tax day. We'll also talk with Charles Stone. He's the author of Holy Noticing, The Bible, Your Brain, and The Mindful Space Between Moments. A rather interesting approach to um, focusing on things that matter 24-7. Today, of course, is also a Holy Week and Holy Monday. This is the day that we remember Jesus cleansing the temple. We'll talk a little more about that later in the program as well. Well, a massive fire broke out at the famed Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris today, this afternoon, uh, local time. Black smoke could be seen from a distance billowing out from the top of the medieval cathedral. Flames leapt uh, from two of its bell towers. The site stopped pedestrians in their tracks along the Seine River, which passes under the cathedral. And it was sad to see such a, a, a significant monument there uh, to be destroyed by fire. They are saying that the two towers that stood uh, to one side will probably not be impacted by the fire, but uh, the cathedral itself uh, is not expected to uh, survive in any meaningful way. There was dramatic video. It showed the cathedral's main spire collapsing from the blaze. Local reports said that the roof also collapsed. There were some questions about how it was being handled, but it is such a tall edifice that it was difficult for them to figure out how to get to where they needed to get water. It was suggested by several that uh, planes flying over would dump water on the, the uh, area where the flames uh, were uh, shooting skyward. Uh, but it was also said that the building very well could have collapsed as well as other buildings nearby. It was under some sort of renovation. And the uh, thought at this point is that it was a consequence of that construction project that was uh, most likely responsible for the blaze, although no specifics are yet uh, known. A church spokesman told the French media that all of Notre Dame Cathedral's frame is burning after the spire collapsed. The roof uh, fell in shortly thereafter. The mayor uh, called it a terrible fire, while the president of France said it was uh, sad to see this part of us burn. Notre Dame of Paris is in flames, emotion in the whole nation. Thoughts for all Catholics and for all French, he tweeted. Like all our countrymen, I'm sad to see this part of us burn. Well, the French capital's police department said no deaths have been reported, nor injuries. The police uh, didn't say anything about um, uh, any of the the other details. Um, Paris authorities are in touch with the Paris diocese. The building, the structure is essentially owned by the uh, Paris government, but the Catholic Church has full access to it. Well, the fire department was fighting the flames while the area near the cathedral was being cleared. And it took several hours before that, uh, before water to douse the flames could be seen. It wasn't immediately clear what caused the fire. Notre Dame was undergoing a $6.8 million renovation project with some sections under scaffolding, while bronze statues were removed last week for work. So at least 
those statues will uh, will survive. Macron, uh, he canceled a planned televised speech to the nation in light of the terrible fire underway at the cathedral, an official uh, from his office said. Additional information wasn't immediately available, um, but uh, we do know that uh, Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris is essentially no more. There is a facade and two towers to one side uh, may remain, but that may be all that is left. Well, an average taxpayer on this tax day is going to have to fork over more than $2,000 this year just to cover their share of the interest on the national debt. It's a huge sum going purely to finance the spending and borrowing of the past. Well, at the rate the national, or rather the national debt is rising, interest payments, the fastest growing part of the budget, the federal budget, will be bigger than Medicaid by next year and the military by 2025. Now, let me repeat that because it is staggering. At the rate the national debt is rising, interest payments, the fastest growing part of the federal budget, will be bigger than Medicaid by next year and the military by 2025. And although public concern for the debt rises and falls depending on the politics of the moment, the debt itself only rises. It's on an unsustainable path projected to grow faster than the economy pretty much forever. That is, unless somebody somewhere steps in. Well, the challenge with dealing with the debt is twofold. Most families can't see how the issue affects them directly and therefore don't think about it much. And secondly, politicians from both parties in search of ways to keep, well, ducking hard choices, uh, latch on to excuses for why you shouldn't worry about it. But the debt threat is considerable. Not only will those interest payments continue to push out to other parts of the budget uh, that are essential to the preservation of our social safety net programs, the high debt also slows the economy and our standard of living, and it leaves us dangerously unprepared for an emergency like a recession or a disaster or national security event. It also means that we're failing to build the kind of federal government we need to help us navigate a new world of growing competition, changing technology, and the need for new investment. Meanwhile, growing partisan politics leaves our leaders more focused on peddling false free lunch solutions than actually leading. Tax cuts pay for themselves. No, they don't. My priority is too important to worry about paying for it. Don't worry, we can just print more money. The debt isn't really important and we can deal with it down the road. The list of bogus claims grows longer and longer as the debt grows deeper and deeper. Well, it's very tough to say when the nation could hit a fiscal tipping point, but we can accurately pinpoint some looming milestones. The higher our debt has ever been was just after World War II at 106% of the size of the economy, or GDP. It quickly fell in the years that followed as war costs subsided, the economy boomed, and the budget was near balance. Today, the debt is 78% of GDP, almost double what it um, was just before the Great Recession. It will pass the World War II high um, in as soon as 10 years, and everything after that is uncharted waters. During the next 15 years, four of our nation's major trust funds will run out of money, threatening our ability to pay for highway programs, Medicare, or Social Security. They all need to uh, be reformed and fully funded, but... You know, tax cuts pay for themselves. My priority is too important to worry about paying for it. Don't worry, we can just print more money. The debt isn't really important, and we can deal with it down the road. Well, these are the largest drivers of debt, Medicare, Social Security. Uh, Again, during the next 15 years, four of the nation's major trust funds are going to run out of money. 
Well, these are the largest drivers of debt. They need solutions to phase in over time. Congress seems intent on waiting until the 11th hour. Seems to me we're already there. But if you look 50 years out, the numbers are incomprehensible. Debt would be over twice as large as the economy, even if Congress didn't do anything to make it worse, which, of course, they will, and three times as large as they um, if they extend current policies. We have a multiple trillion dollar problem that isn't just being ignored. It's being recklessly compounded. The last Congress and the president chose to double down on debt and put tax cuts and massive spending increases on the credit card, a tab that together will add another $2.4 trillion to the debt over the next decade. The first step in addressing the debt is acknowledging it. The second is to stop adding to it. And only then can we come up with a plan to put it on the downward path back to a responsible level in a way that's at least uh, likely to impact people's lives. No newly elected politician went on uh, went to spend time and capital cleaning up the past. But that is the position we find ourselves in. And every uh, new crop wants to look ahead rather than behind. But you can console yourself because the taxes, uh, tax cuts rather will pay for themselves. My priority is too important to worry about paying for it. Don't worry. We can just print more money. The debt isn't really important and we can deal with it down the road. Well, we're down the road. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. By the way, later in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Justin Boggy. He's a senior policy analyst. We're going to talk about how your tax dollars are actually spent. We'll also talk with uh, Pastor Dr. Charles Stone, author of Holy Noticing, The Bible, Your Brain, and the Mindful Space Between Moments. That's coming up in our next hour. Well, Representative Ilhan Omar, a Democrat out of Minnesota, says she received an influx of death threats since President Trump tweeted a video on Friday that combined comments from the congresswoman, which critics said were dismissive of the 9-11 attacks with footage from Ground Zero. I've experienced an increase in direct threats on my life, many directly referencing or replying to the president's video. She tweeted in a statement on Sunday night. She said that hate crimes around the world by right wing extremists and white nationalists are on the rise and the world and Uh, around the world and accused Trump of encouraging acts of hate. Now, it's interesting to me, while you may criticize the president, individuals who make controversial statements never take responsibility for the controversial nature of their own statements and bear at least some of the responsibility for those statements. But her comments came as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced that she had taken steps to ensure the freshman congresswoman's safety and called on the president to take the tweet down. The White House defended the president, saying that he had a duty to highlight her history of comments that others have found offensive, blamed Democrats for not holding the congresswoman accountable accountable when they had the opportunity to do so for her alleged anti-Semitic comments and that he wished no ill will upon the first term lawmaker. The back and forth does get tiresome and tedious. Meanwhile, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders is um, holding a, uh, a town hall on Fox News tonight. It was a rather it's still ongoing, but rather contentious from the very beginning. Brett Baer and Martha McCallum moderated are moderating, I should say, the hour long event uh, It will be in the senator's first appearance or rather will be his first appearance on the network. And he spent much of his time at the beginning criticizing the network rather than dealing with the questions being posed to him by the two moderators or the audience. But that sense settled down and um, it's an actually very enlightening and interesting 
uh, town hall. He'll be the second Democrat presidential contender to appear on the program. President Trump's reelection campaign raised $30.3 million in the first quarter of this year, far pacing the leading fundraiser uh, among the Democrats. Of course, you have how many now? 18, 19 contenders. Uh, the Trump campaign said nearly 99 percent of its donations were of $200 or less, with an average donation of $34.26. And all the campaign had $40.8 million cash on hand, an unprecedented war chest for an incumbent president. Uh, this early in the campaign. Among Trump's would-be Democratic challengers, Vermont uh, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders was leading the money race after taking in $18.2 million in the first quarter of this year. He uh, was followed by California Senator Kamala Harris with $12 million, former Representative Beto O'Rourke at $9.4 million, South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg, Buttigieg, I can never get that quite right, $7 million, and I do know how to say it, I just, when I'm Anyway, so another subject. And Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren rounded out the top five fundraisers among the Democrats. Well, Lindsey Graham's plan to combat the immigration crisis. Well, he says on Sunday that he's currently working on a drastic overhaul of the U.S. um, asylum laws in an effort to deal with the ongoing migration crisis at the country's southern border with Mexico. And while he agreed with the president's call for more U.S. troops on the border and the need for a physical barrier, He argued on Sunday morning futures that the only way to make real progress in combating the flow of migrants over the southern border is to change laws regarding how and when the U.S. grants asylum. Meanwhile, White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders confirmed that President Trump's prospective plan to send illegal immigrants to sanctuary cities is undergoing a complete and thorough review. More on that shortly. Tiger Woods is basking in the glory of his fifth and perhaps most improbable and emotional major title victory after winning the Masters on Sunday. His comeback has come full circle. Only two years ago at Augusta National, Woods needed a nerve block just to hobble upstairs to the champion's dinner. Unsure he would ever play another round of golf. He had a fourth back surgery with hopes of simply playing with his two children. Now at age 43, he is a Masters champion again, his first green jacket since 2005, and his first major since the 2008 U.S. Open. In addition to Woods' fifth Masters championship and the 15th major title, trailing only the great Jack Nicholas. Uh, In both categories, Sunday marked his 81st victory on the PGA Tour, one away from the career record held by Sam Snead. Perhaps most uh, gratifying for Woods is that his two children, ages 10 and 11, got to see him win a championship uh, and to do so live and not just relive his past glory on YouTube. Well, the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in favor of President Trump on Friday when it determined that the government can at least temporarily continue to send asylum seekers back to Mexico. The asylum program was scheduled to be shut down at midnight under the order of District Judge Richard Seaborg, but the White House requested that the appeals court intervene. The Ninth Circuit temporarily stayed the lower court ruling as the parties get ready to submit their arguments next week on the government's request for a longer stay that would likely last months. And House Democrats are giving the Trump administration a hard deadline of April 23rd to turn over the president's tax returns. Legal experts have suggested that an outright denial of their request by Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin could be followed by subpoena or a lawsuit in federal court. Mnuchin so far has only postponed responding to Democrats' request and said he would confer with the Justice Department, but he has yet to reject it. And New Jersey became the eighth state in the country to legalize assisted suicide on Friday. 
Democratic Governor Phil Murphy signed legislation that will allow doctors to prescribe lethal doses of medicine to patients who've been diagnosed as terminally ill. And North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has laid down an end-of-year marker for the United States to agree to terms for a nuclear deal while signaling he may agree to a third summit with President Trump. Although President Trump agreeing to a third summit with him is somewhat questionable. Kim said that he will wait till the end of this year for the U.S. to decide to be more flexible in negotiations. He called uh, offers floated by the U.S. absolutely impractical, arguing that the administration did not really ready itself to sit with us face to face and settle the problem. Hmm. Well, on this day in 2013, two bombs made their pressure cookers explode at the Boston Marathon finish line, killing two women and an eight-year-old boy and injuring more than 260. Today, or maybe it was yesterday, the Boston Marathon took place without incident. And uh, it was uh, on this day in 1947 that Jackie Robinson, baseball's first black major league player, makes his official debut with the Brooklyn Dodgers on opening day in Ebbets Field. And on this day in 1865, President Abraham Lincoln dies nine hours after being shot the night before by John Wilkes Booth at Ford's Theater in Washington. Andrew Johnson becomes the nation's 17th president. Well, special counsel Robert Mueller's much-anticipated Russia report is said to be released to the public and to Congress Thursday morning. That's according to the Justice Department in an announcement earlier today. Justice Department spokeswoman Carrie Kupek Uh, said the report would be made available with redactions Thursday morning to lawmakers and to the public. The news comes despite mounting calls from Democrats to first release the report to Congress without redactions. Attorney General Bill Barr testified last Wednesday he planned to have the report available within a week, maintaining his original vow to release Mueller's full report by mid-April. Last month, Mueller submitted his uh, more than 300-page report to the Justice Department for review by the Attorney General and Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. In a letter to Congress, Barr relayed some of the primary findings of the report, stating the special counsel found no evidence of collusion between members of the Trump campaign and the Russians during the 2016 presidential election. Mueller was also tasked with investigating whether the president had obstructed justice in any way. But ultimately, he did not come to a conclusion on that issue, leaving the decision to the Department of Justice. The attorney general and Rosenstein, though, said the evidence was not sufficient to establish that the president committed an obstruction of justice offense. While Barr has faced mounting criticism from Democrats over his short four page description of findings from the Mueller report, most congressional Democrats demanded Barr turn over the full report without redactions to the House and Senate Judiciary Committees for review prior to releasing it to the public. But we now see how that's going to uh, going to end Thursday morning. The report will be available not only to members of Congress, but to the public as well. 30 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 33 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the U.S. terrorism label for Iran's Revolutionary Guard formally took effect today with a battle between the Trump administration and some in Congress over waivers on oil and nuclear sanctions that are due to expire or to be extended early next month. The Guard's formal designation as a foreign terrorist organization, the first ever for an entire division of another government, kicked in with a notice uh, published in the Federal Register. Well, the move adds a layer of sanctions to the elite military unit and makes it a crime for anyone or 
um, uh, in or subject to U.S. jurisdiction to provide it with material support. Well, depending on how broadly material support is interpreted, the the, uh, designation may complicate U.S. diplomatic and military cooperation with certain third country officials, notably in Iraq and in Lebanon, who deal with the Guard. Well, President Trump's and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced the step with uh, great fanfare last week, opening a one-week consultation period with Congress during which members could have raised objections. Lawmakers were broadly supportive, but congressional uh, Iran hawks are now expressing concern that the administration may extend waivers on oil and nuclear sanctions. Those sanctions, which are unrelated to the Guard designation, were imposed last November following the president's withdrawal from the U.S., um, or rather of the U.S., from the landmark 2015 Iran nuclear deal that May. Well, they target major elements of Iran's economy, notably its energy sector, by hitting foreign companies and governments with so-called secondary sanctions if they continue to do business with targeted Iranian entities. Well, the main goal has been to dry up revenue from Iran's oil exports, which the U.S. says is the main driver of the country's funding for destabilizing activities throughout the Middle East and beyond. But those sanctions um, related to the Revolutionary Guard kicked in today. Well, Mayor Pete wants to be President Pete. Pete Buttigieg, Buttigieg, thank you. I know I, anyway. The mayor of South Bend, Indiana, who's been, uh, who's seen his poll numbers surge in recent weeks, officially declared on Sunday that he's running for president. In a speech where he highlighted both his progressive values and Midwestern upbringing, he said, I ran for mayor in 2011, knowing that nothing like, um, Studebaker would ever come back, but believing that we would, our city would, uh, if we had the courage to reimagine our future, Buttigieg said in a speech outside South Bend's Studebaker auto plant. And now I can confidently say that South Bend is back. Well, he added, there's a long way for us to go. Life here is uh, far from perfect, but we've changed our trajectory and shown a path forward for communities like ours. Well, the 37-year-old Afghanistan war veteran who's been exploring a White House uh, run since January now joins the field of a dozen plus rivals and one that's likely to reach 20 or more. Over the past few weeks, Buttigieg has appeared frequently on national TV, news and talk shows and developed a strong social media following with his message that the country needs a new generation of leadership. Uh, The future calls for hopeful, audacious voices in our community, he said on Sunday. And yes, it calls for a new generation of leadership in this country. Now, there might be some on the uh, Democrat ticket who would beg to differ, but nonetheless, he is one of the Uh, growing younger candidates seeking uh, support of his party. His poll numbers have climbed. Some polls put him behind only Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, who sought the party's nomination in 2016, and former Vice President Joe Biden, who has not yet said he's running. Buttigieg's campaign raised more than $7 million in the first three months of this year, a total eclipse by Sanders' $18 million. But more than Senators Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, and Cory Booker of New Jersey among others. Well, he's, um, his challenge is finding a way to sustain the momentum over the long term, avoiding becoming a flavor of the month candidate. Scrutiny of his leadership in South Bend has increased as he has um, had uh, spent some time criticizing Vice President Mike Pence, who was Indiana's governor when Buttigieg was in his first term as mayor. But another name to be added to the list of contenders for the Democrats.
Meanwhile, a new poll released on Monday has Senator Bernie Sanders leading the 2020 Democratic presidential field ahead of former Vice President Joe Biden. Former Texas Representative Beto O'Rourke, who was the flavor of the month a few weeks back, Senator Kamala Harris of California and more than a dozen other potential White House challengers. The poll was conducted by Emerson Polling. It puts Sanders atop the already crowded field of 29 or with 29 percent, followed by Biden, who has yet to declare his candidacy with 24 percent and a surging South Bend, Indiana, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg uh, rounding off the top three with nine percent. O'Rourke and Harris garnered 8 percent, while Senator Elizabeth Warren pulled in 7 percent. The polling indicates that Sanders, who will appear and did uh, tonight on Fox News Hall, uh, Town Hall, has a broader appeal than just his Democratic socialist base and that his message about trade unions, uh, working families and health care is resonating with Democratic voters. Now, one of the reasons I'm certain he agreed to appear on Fox this evening was the fact that about 12 percent of Voters who uh, had supported him supported um, Donald Trump for president when Bernie Sanders was no longer in the running. And his message now is that President Trump has fallen short and hasn't lived up to the promises he made to working families. So that is the um, the momentum that he's moving forward with now. Well, last week, Sanders uh, launched a revamped Medicare for All plan that would replace job-based and individual private health insurance with a government-run plan that guarantees coverage for all with no premiums, deductibles, and only minimal co-pays for certain services. In this latest version, he added coverage for long-term care. Uh, besides uh, him taking the top spot in the poll, the other big news was that Emerson in the Emerson survey was the rise of Pete Buttigieg, affectionately known to his fans as Mayor Pete. The poll is another piece of good news for the once thought to be long shot candidate who officially declared his White House intentions on Sunday. Presidential candidate Senator Elizabeth Warren released her 2018 tax returns on Wednesday showing she and her husband earned nearly a million dollars last year. The Democrat from Massachusetts used the release to once again highlight a bill she's pushing that would mandate that the Internal Revenue Service publicly release the tax returns of the president, vice president, presidential candidates, and federal office holders. Currently, that's not a requirement. I put out 11 years of my tax returns because no one should ever have to guess who their elected officials are working for. Doing this should be law, she said in a statement, in a likely jab to President Trump and possibly rise. Bernie Sanders. But the details of her high income also come as the candidate doubles down on calls to tax the rich. Her campaign released the candidate's returns minutes after the senator concluded a speech to a union crowd in the nation's capital, where she once again pushed for her proposal to tax ultra-wealthy Americans based on their assets. I'm in this fight for a wealth tax, a 2% tax on 75 um, biggest fortunes in the country, 2%. That's all we're asking. The populist senator with a history of taking uh, taking on Wall Street and big business highlighted as she addressed the, a gathering of North uh, America's building trade union. In another election, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, Prime Minister uh, Netanyahu, clinched yet another victory in Israel's election on Tuesday, winning an historic fifth term in office that could soon make him the longest-serving prime minister in Israel's history. Netanyahu withstood a major challenge from political newcomer Benny Gantz, a retired general who'd served as uh, chief of the general staff of the Israeli Defense Forces. Israeli polls had indicated that Gantz had gained a slight lead in recent weeks, but the final vote count 
show that Netanyahu made a final sprint to victory. Gantz conceded defeat after concluding that he had little hope of winning the backing of a majority of Israel's 120-seat parliament, the Knesset. Although his uh, centrist Blue and White Party won 35 seats, an impressive number for a new party, Netanyahu's uh, conservative Likud Party won 36. Gantz acknowledged that the superior performance of other right-wing parties relative to Israel's Leftist parties gave Netanyahu a much better chance of assembling a ruling coalition, which required at least 61 seats. The election was billed as a referendum on Netanyahu's leadership. If that was the case, then Netanyahu passed with flying colors by adding six seats to Likud's previous 30-seat total. This was Likud's best showing since 2003, when it won 38 seats under the leadership of Prime Minister Ariel Sharon. Well, the media focus on the race between Netanyahu and Gantz obscured the fact that popular support for Israel's leftist parties has continued to erode. In particular, the Labor Party, which dominated Israeli politics from 1948 to 1977, garnered only six seats. That's down from 18 seats in the last um, last period. Israeli President Reuven Rivlin next week will appoint the party's leader that he determines has the best chance of cobbling together a majority in the Knesset. Netanyahu is certain to be appointed. Likud and its national, or rather natural partners on the right are projected to control 65 seats, while Gantz could potentially attract the support of 55 at uh, most, um, including 10 seats from Arab political parties that have never joined governing coalitions. Once appointed, Netanyahu would have 28 days to assemble a ruling coalition containing at least 61 Knesset members with a possible two-week extension if necessary. This will require extensive negotiations with other political parties over policy issues, cabinet positions, political appointments. Particularly noteworthy will be the appointment of a defense minister, traditionally considered the most important slot after the prime minister. The leader of the secular nationalist um, party is known to uh, want to return as defense minister, but his resignation last November due to disagreements with Netanyahu's Gaza policy may lead Netanyahu to deny him that position. Assembling the new coalition government will take many days, if not weeks, of hard negotiations, but the next administration should be up for the running by mid-May. By mid-summer, Netanyahu will become Israel's longest-serving prime minister, surpassing David Ben-Gurion, Israel's founding father. Netanyahu's fifth turn may become one of his shortest, however, as he faces three possible indictments on corruption charges. Israeli Attorney General announced in February that he intends to indict the prime minister on charges of bribery, fraud and breach of trust related to three different investigations. Netanyahu has strenuously denied the charges, which he has denounced as a witch hunt. He's entitled to a hearing to refute the charges. If the case proceeds, he would become the first Israeli prime minister to be indicted while in office. He's not required to resign if indicted, but only if convicted. He enjoys uh, strong support from Likud, as well as other conservative, nationalist and religious parties. Despite his resounding political victory, it remains to be seen if he can withstand the potential career-ending charges he soon may face in court. Now, he's also argued that um, there is sufficient law or precedent, and I'm not sure which, in Israel that would uh, spare him having to face the charges while in office. I'm not familiar enough or at all with uh, that provision of law to know if that's the case, but it will be interesting to watch uh, what happens next in this very long, arduous process. 45 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk about how your taxes are spent on this tax day. Yeah, they're due. And we'll also talk with um, 
Pastor Charles Stone. He's also a Ph.D. His book is titled Holy Noticing, The Bible, Your Brain, and the Mindful Space Between Moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 50 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Mark Morgan, who's a former Border Patrol chief under President Obama, said today that he supports an idea floated by President Trump to send immigrants from the border to sanctuary cities, saying Congress has failed to do their job. Make no mistake, they could have prevented this border crisis, and they failed to do so. And then every time this current administration tries to come up with an, an option, they shoot it down. Well, I haven't heard any options from them, Morgan said on America's newsroom. I've been there. The Border Patrol, ICE, their facilities are overwhelmed. The faith-based organizations and other non-governmental organizations are overwhelmed. They have no choice. They're going to have to start pushing these individuals out. Shouldn't we kind of share the burden throughout the country, end quote. White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders confirmed that President Trump's perspective um, a plan to send illegal immigrants to sanctuary cities is undergoing a complete and thorough review days after Democrats who fought to protect illegal immigrants from federal authorities characterized the possible move as a dangerous stunt. Now, why dangerous, um, given the position they hold on immigrants in communities, even when they're not in the country legally? But um, Sanders said on Sunday in response, nobody thinks that this is uh, the ideal solution, but until we can fix the crisis at the border, we have to look at all options. This is one of them. Whether or not it moves forward, that's yet to be determined. Well, the Democratic chairman of the Homeland Security Committee, Bernie Thompson, or rather Benny Thompson, is a critic of this option and the White House description of what's happening at the border. This is, again, his manufactured chaos that he, President Trump, created over the last two years on the border. Now, he's in the minority now uh, in that he's not acknowledging the crisis because there has been a shift uh, away from denying that there's a crisis. Now the the, uh, focus is what to do about it. Uh, In any event, Apparently, the idea is still on the table. I'm not even sure that it's legal. It's most likely not going to happen, but it certainly has exposed uh, something of a a weakness in the argument that uh, sanctuary cities uh, do, in fact, improve communities in general. In fact, one of the mayors of one of the sanctuary cities says, look, we've got to take care of our own people. We can't afford to have these people come. It's almost a direct quote, although not exactly. Uh, Again, exposing maybe the hypocrisy behind Um, the theoretical idea of a sanctuary city without it being challenged and populated with those who now desperately need someplace to go. Well, WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange is finally going to face the music. According to many across the political spectrum, he is no hero. To a handful of others, he is. For the last seven years, Assange has avoided accountability for his conduct. He's holed up in the Ecuadorian embassy in London at a cost of $3 million dollars. In fact, that's a conservative estimate. But that ended last week at a news conference on Thursday. Ecuadorian President Lenin Moreno said, we've ended the asylum of this spoiled brat. That's a direct quote. The serial publisher and uh, classified or rather of classified and other material was, according to news reports, a horrible guest. He reportedly had horrible hygiene, faced allegations that he physically harassed his caretakers I won't even describe some of the other disgusting things, but reportedly compromised the embassy communication system, which allowed him to access and 
intercept the official and personal communications of staff. He also threatened the country to expose some elements of their leadership. Well, now that his asylum is officially over, he has to confront his legal challenges as the United Kingdom, Sweden and the United States each have filed charges against him for various alleged crimes. Recall that in 2012, Assange took refuge at the Ecuadorian embassy in London to avoid extradition to Sweden over a sexual assault case. And he's been there ever since. Well, until recently, a U.K. court had granted him bail in 2012 while he fought his extradition to Sweden. But instead of fighting his extradition to Sweden, he skipped bail, uh, ingratiated himself with the country of Ecuador, received asylum and retired to their London embassy. Well, immediately after his asylum was revoked, a bearded and disheveled Assange was dragged out of the embassy by British police and arrested on the U.K. warrant for skipping bail. He was also arrested pursuant to the U.S.-U.K. extradition treaty in connection with a U.S. federal charge of conspiracy to commit computer intrusion. Assange was taken to a courtroom in London where he was found guilty of the bail-skipping offense. He will be sentenced on the 2nd of May where he faces up to a year in jail for that. He remains in a British jail pending sentencing. He is a flight risk. Uh, That's where things got interesting as there is an open question as to what happens to Assange after he's sentenced on the UK bail skipping charge. Will he go to Sweden to face the sexual assault charges or the United States for the computer conspiracy charge or what? Well, Assange's legal team have vowed to fight extradition to any country, and some predict it could take years and that his legal woes are just beginning. And since he is a political cause celebre uh, who has fans uh, everywhere, he may have a financial means to sustain his efforts to avoid extradition for at least a little while. But the back and forth will continue uh, for some time. Now, one uh, commentator points out that Assange is no hero. According to the federal indictment, he conspired with others, including Bradley Manning, to access U.S. government computers to obtain secret information. He did so with reason to believe that the information could be used to injure the United States. He willfully communicated that information consisting of 90,000 Afghan war reports, 400,000 Iraq uh, war reports, 800 Gitmo detainee assessments, 250,000 U.S. State Department cables to any person not entitled to receive it. In doing so, Assange endangered the lives of American military personnel in Iraq and Afghanistan, harmed those assisting us and strained our relationship with key allies. Assange is presumed innocent. We should be uh, extradited to the United States and brought to justice once he's finished perhaps his other legal woes. Governor Kate Brown today released her plan for halting the rise in the cost of the public employees retirement system or PERS costs for Oregon schools, community colleges and public universities. The governor's concept calls for the state to set aside two point five to three billion dollars to hold employer rates steady. That sum would be front-end loaded with an $800 million down payment, but the rest of the money could flow in over the next 14 years. Tweaks to the PERS system will not set us on a path toward stability, the governor said in a statement. We've had this problem for several years, and I am not willing to go another legislative session without taking significant steps to stabilize school rates and address the PERS' unfunded liability. Well, the governor proposes to pull together several different pots of money to use to pay down some of the obligations school districts and <clears throat> excuse me, other educational institutions owe to current and future retirees. Part of the plan that's sure to draw howls from her union base is a proposal that public employees shoulder part of the cost. Public employees provide extremely valuable service, the chief of staff Nick Blosser to the governor said. We need to stabilize their retirement. There's a deficit now and we need to... Uh, equitably spread the burden of addressing that deficit. This plan does that. Well, the governor's proposal comes 
At an opportune time last week, lawmakers offered Oregonians an idea of how they could deploy $2 billion in new revenue for K-12 through education. Not coincidentally, former Governor Ted Kulingoski and his one-time chief of staff, the former labor uh, leader, Tim Nesbitt rolled out plans for two 2020 ballot measures that could cut the public employee pension costs that threaten to consume much of the proposed new tax increases. Public employee unions don't like the uh, ballot measures, which would uh, bite more deeply into the compensation of current employees than would Brown's proposal and begin a transition away from a defined benefit plan where the state is on the hook for future payments to a 401k style plan where the employee takes more of the risk. The governor said she does not favor adopting the 401k style plan, saying we must protect the current PERS um, defined benefit plan and implement modest, dedicated employee contributions to secure each member's retirement. Uh, The governor is uh, charting a middle ground. She wants to halt the increase in employer contributions to pension costs and effectively hold it steady at current rates for the next 14 years. The governor's position is um, that if nothing is done, the rising cost of pension obligations will consume much of the new funding for teachers and educational services. And uh, as the uh, legislature moves forward, we'll see which of the plan options they will ultimately settle on. All right. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. It's about 59 minutes after four o'clock. We're going to take a break for news and traffic here in just a moment. When we return, we're going to talk with Justin Boggy. He's a senior policy analyst in fiscal affairs at the Grover Herman Center for federal, uh, the federal budget at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about how your taxes are actually spent. And we'll talk with Dr. Charles Stone. He's a full-time pastor and author of Holy Noticing, The Bible, Your Brain, and the Mindful Spaces Between Moments. The book is published by Moody. We'll be back shortly. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part by Zero Res. Well, today, of course, is tax day. And yes, true to form. No, I haven't um, haven't, uh, mailed my taxes yet. It's only, what, 5 o'clock? I owe, so I'll wait till the last possible moment, as has become my practice. Anyway, last year, Washington collected more than $3.3 trillion in taxes. So where exactly does all that money go? Well, some think that most of it goes to foreign aid and defense. Others might think corporate subsidies dominate the budget. But what is the reality? Well, here to talk with us about that is Justin Bogey. He's Senior Policy Analyst in Fiscal Affairs at the Grover M. Herman's Center for the Federal Budget at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Georgine. Good to be with you. It's good to be with you as well. Well, for those of us who wait till the last minute, it's sort of painful to finally let go of that envelope with the check in it. Uh, But it is healthy for us to seize this opportunity to really learn where our tax dollars go. So tell us, where do our tax dollars go? Absolutely. It's, it's no fun to have to mail that check, but it's uh, just, just one of the realities of life, I guess. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, thankfully, you know, I think about 90% of Americans are actually paying less taxes this year than they did last year, thanks to the uh, tax cuts that went into effect in, in late 2017. So that is a little bit of positive news, but back to your original question. So uh, people have these kind of uh, ideas about where all this tax money is, is going, and, and everybody focuses on the appropriations process in Congress and thinks that's what all the money's being spent on. Uh, but really, it's these mandatory programs like uh, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, some of the Obamacare uh, subsidies. And that's where about half of all uh, tax dollars are going to. Uh, you mentioned defense. A lot of people think we spend a lot of money on national defense. It's really just about 15% of the federal budget. This is actually the first year in, in 
recent years or so that that share has, has gone up. Uh, so, you know, not, not a, a whole lot, huge amount is going towards defense. Um, and, and then you have uh, about nine or eight or nine percent that's going towards interest on the national debt. So just, just paying our, our creditors and then everything else kind of gets thrown into the, the rest of the pot there. Um, the other third or so of the federal of the federal budget. Um, so, so again, you know, most of it's going towards these major uh, federal programs, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Now, we're always concerned about whether or not the the money is being managed well. I mean, I think we all agree that we um, are we live in a wonderful country. We benefit from uh, much of what the federal government does, but we may be dissatisfied with how our money is being managed as well. Take, for example, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. Uh, we're concerned that uh, the systems are not don't have the kind of longevity that they uh, should have, that decisions aren't being made to um, make these sustainable over a longer period of time. Um, we know where the money goes in terms of percentage of the 2018 budget, uh, for example. But are we uh, are we seeing the money being managed well? Right. I think that's, that's a very fair question and important point. Uh, as you mentioned, Social Security, is, uh, the trust funds are set to go insolvent by 2034 under current estimates. Uh, basically, that means that their reserves are going to be uh, uh, drawn down. There's going to be nothing left in the reserves. And so at that point, people could theoretically uh, be, be facing a cut in their, in their benefits. So we need to get serious about reforming those uh, programs. Uh, in terms of accountability, you know, I think there's a lot of other areas uh, the federal budget, uh, health care, for instance, there's, there's billions and billions of dollars every year that go towards improper payments or, or you know, so-called waste product abuse, people uh, making claims that, that shouldn't be uh, paid. Um, we also have this very big problem with unauthorized appropriations. So about uh, over $300 billion last year uh, went towards programs that did not have a current authorization. And, and well, why that's important is um, that's really part of Congress's oversight responsibility. They're supposed to be reviewing programs, you know, on a on a revolving basis, usually three to five years, uh, making sure they're really serving the purpose that they were created for, and, and that that money's being used efficiently. And so, when you have three hundred billion dollars plus in, in unauthorized appropriations, it's hard to make an argument that Congress is really doing everything that they can be to be good stewards of taxpayer dollars. In your column uh, that appears in the Daily Signal. In one chart, how your taxes are spent. And by the way, I have a link to that on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page. You write that over the coming decade, U.S. debt held by the public is projected to balloon to nearly 93 percent of gross domestic product. But don't blame that on inadequate taxation. By 2024, the pro-growth tax enacted in 2017 will actually raise more revenue yearly than the old system. Right. And, and that's been something really common we've heard since the, the tax cuts went into effect uh, you know, just a little over a year ago. Is that this? Uh, you know, the the tax cuts are causing deficits to balloon. They're causing the debt to go up, and that's really just not the case. You know, over the next ten years, uh, uh, tax revenues are going to be higher than than their historical average. Uh, the problem is that spending is just really outpacing that. It's it's even if we got four percent economic growth every year, um, this isn't really a problem that we can grow ourselves out of. It's it's not going to be able to keep pace with these, uh, especially healthcare, these these large programs that are just growing so quickly and, and consuming more and more of the federal budget. Um, if you look at the, the numbers, uh, just Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, and interest on the debt will are on pace to consume all federal revenues in just about 20 years. Uh, so you could get rid of national defense. You could get rid of 
uh, food assistance programs. You could get rid of everything else, and the federal government still wouldn't be able to balance the budget uh, because of those programs and how quickly they're growing. Well, it is very sobering, and we would do well to take uh, this teachable moment, um, tax day, uh, to think about whether or not uh, we believe that the federal government is managing those resources well. We we know that we have to pay taxes, but we'd like to think that they're being managed well and uh, that they have the long term in mind. Justin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Really appreciate it. And again, his uh, column, which has a chart that kind of breaks down where the money uh, actually goes, spending as a percentage of the uh, budget, uh, can be found at the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page. It originally appeared on the Daily Signal. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Dr. Charles Stone. He is the author of Holy Noticing, The Bible, Your Brain, and The Mindful Spaces Between Moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. My next guest is the author of Holy Noticing, The Bible, Your Brain, and the Mindful Space Between Moments. Well, in the book, Dr. Charles Stone guides readers through the lost art of holy noticing, purposefully paying attention to God as he works in us, in our relationships, and in our world. Now, many of us today think that mindfulness is dangerous, it's unchristian, it's associated with Eastern religions, and quite often it is. But according to Dr. Stone, he explains that mindfulness is a spiritual discipline that Christians have practiced for millennia. And he explores the historically Christian and biblical roots of the lifestyle. He teaches readers how to be more engaged with Christ in the everyday moments that too often slip by us, noticing with a holy purpose. So I'm looking forward to uh, talking with Dr. Charles Stone. He served for 38 years in ministry, 26 of those years as a senior pastor. He currently pastors West Park Church in London, Ontario, Canada, a multicultural congregation. Uh, He founded Stonewell Ministries as well to serve pastors and churches through coaching and consulting. Many of his articles have been featured in magazines such as Outreach, Leadership Journal, Rev, New Man, and others. And his blog posts have appeared on sites like pastors.com, sermoncentral.com, churchcentral.com, and many others. He joins us today to talk about his book, Holy Noticing, The Bible, Your Brain, and the Mindful Space Between Moments. Thank you so much for joining, uh, joining us, Dr. Stone. Great to be with you, Georgie. Well, this is uh, this could be considered a controversial book in that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, mindfulness is a practice that has gained a great deal of popularity. But you point out very early, even in the introduction, that what you're ta- writing about, holy noticing, is an ancient biblical practice. Give us a bit of history. Yes, well, it really is. If you look at the language, the Hebrew language, uh, one of the key words in the Hebrew language that describes this concept of mindfulness, being still before God, meditation is the word zakar. And the Hebrew language is a very, very ancient language that precedes the language that perhaps Buddhists might use. So you have that in the scriptures, but you also historically in the in the Old Testament, New Testament, in the early church age, you have many of these um, men and women who wanted to seek a deeper relationship with God practiced these concepts, these practices like mindfulness that I'm calling holy noticing. So it's rooted in Scripture as well as in church history. And what led you to explore the lost spiritual art of holy noticing? Well, Georgine, is very, very personal. It actually started about 32 years ago in a high chair. I was not in the high chair, but my youngest daughter was. Mm-hmm. 
it was Christmas morning. I was feeding her pureed peaches or something like that, and I noticed her left eye was quivering. Now, you know, if you have a young child, you think that's kind of odd. So a couple of days later, we went to see a specialist. We were in Mississippi, where my wife is from, and he said it's probably a strabismus, you know, or something in her eye that she'll outgrow. But when you go back to Atlanta, where we lived at the time, why don't you go to a specialist? We did. He said the same thing. I don't know, probably a strabismus, but let's do a scan anyway. So a couple of days later, we got a scan, and just as we arrived at home after that scan, so opening the front door, phone rang. I ran into the kitchen, picked it up, and it was the doctor. He said, Mr. Stone, we have the results back. I said, okay, what were they? He said, well, your daughter has a lesion on her brain. And I thought, well, a lesion is like a skin knee, you know, mm -hmm. antibiotic, and you're fine. Then he said something, Georgina, that literally changed our lives the next several decades. He said, your daughter has a brain tumor. Mm. Little one-year-old girls aren't supposed to get brain tumors. And that actually began this journey. She fast forward ahead 32 years, she's doing pretty well. She's had 12 brain surgeries and she's had devices put into her brain, part of her brain removed. But that living in that world of neuroscience made me ask the question, not that I had a brain tumor, but because I struggled with anxiety and defensiveness, you know, as a pastor, like, why is this happening when I practice all disciplines? That led me to this a discovery of this ancient practice that as I've practiced has been a, made a profound difference in my life. So the genesis really was rooted in that day, Christmas Day, when I noticed something was wrong in my daughter's eye. Mm. You write that uh, our journey with Tiffany made me think more about, uh, more often about what matters most in life, uh, yeah. and that this ancient biblical practice really uh, calls us to be more mindful, if you will, to use a uh, sometimes misused term, um, but calls us to be more aware of God's presence, what he's doing, the people in our, in our lives, and so on. Yes. Well, I actually define mindfulness with the two words, holy noticing, and I call it an art. And here's how I actually tease that out a bit. I call holy noticing, noticing with a holy purpose, God and his handiwork, our relationships, and our inner world of thoughts and feelings. So it really is an art to learn to be present because what happens, Georgine, a lot of times in life, I'm guilty of this too, and, and everybody is. We have a difficult moment. We have a difficult experience. We want to get past that. We want to get beyond that. We want to get out of this difficult moment to get to the next better moment. So we're always searching for the next better moment rather than realizing, okay, this is the moment I'm in. This is the experience I, uh, I'm having. These are the emotions and thoughts I'm having. I need to be present with the Lord to notice what he's up to, how he's working, and learn from that. So it's, it really is an art that can profoundly impact many areas of our life and, and I believe help us, help us become more like Jesus. You draw our attention to the Apostle Paul who writes in Ephesians 5 uh, that we are to make the most of every opportunity. And you ask a series of questions that I think all of us would, a would answer in the affirmative, but don't really think about um, the fact that we can control more than we think we can about how we navigate through some of life's challenges and through some of life's greatest joys. Yeah, you know, we all have difficult experiences, and the difficult experiences are hard enough. But what really makes them worse is what, how we respond to those in our mind and our thoughts. Because what we often do, instead of, uh, it's the proverbial snowball effect. A difficult situation happens. We experience a difference. But our commentary, we add to it. 
the spins we put on it makes it become much, much larger. So the original problem no longer is the original problem, the difficulty we were facing, but it's what we add to it and the narrative we add to it. And when the narrative, which is almost always negative, these negative emotions happen and anxiety rises and depression rises and defensiveness rises, whereas holy noticing helps us stop before we began to add all this commentary and make things really worse than they really are. Now, you point out, and I think most of our listeners would be aware of the fact that mindfulness is a pretty big deal today. It's become a billion-dollar-a-year business. Uh, And the the question is, should Christians embrace it just because everyone else is doing it, or is there a biblical basis for our doing so? Uh, and uh, to what end? So let's let's address that. You reference J.I. Packer, who writes about this kind of practice, so that we can dispel any uh, concerns that this is just following a trend um, that's become popularized, as sometimes Christian practice does. It follows whatever is popular, and we, we do it because the rest of the culture does it, and it may make us seem more relevant. Yeah, it, it's thing. mindfulness from a Christian context is not just, oh, this is a new fad, let's jump on board. But because we have deep uh, biblical roots in the Old Testament, New Testament, because we follow some of these early, um, con- what they're called contemplatives, these were men and women who left persecution and went to the deserts, probably 30,000 over two or three centuries. And also when Christianity was finally legalized, many left because they thought the church was no longer pure. And in their experiences, they discovered these deep, rich insights always rooted back in Scripture. So because we have the scriptural support, because we have uh, the historical support, and because science, neuroscience, is now affirming these things that Scripture already knew about, we can say, I think, with a strong level of confidence that mindfulness, holy noticing, practiced in a Christian context is a very sound spiritual practice. And you find J.I. Packer, you find D.L. Moody, you find A.W. Tozier, uh, you find a John Wesley, all of these great, more recent uh, Christians that we admire and respect speak of this uh, contemplative way of being still before God, only noticing. So we have strong biblical roots in all different directions that support it. Well, in fact, as you've defined it, uh, that's really countercultural living because that's contrary to the fast-paced, always distracted life uh, that's so common in our culture today. Yeah, you know, we are always on autopilot, rush, 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 especially with all of our gadgets. You know, I'm, I'm a gadget guy. I have an Apple Watch on my wrist. I'm looking at my iPhone. I've, I'm, I've got my screen here with my uh, with my Mac. So we're we're constantly on like 24-7. So we live in this crazy culture. But if you go back and look at a very interesting scene in Jesus' life, he visited the home of Mary and Martha, very faith. He loved both of these sisters. Martha was all fretful and worried, busy in the kitchen. What was Mary doing? She was at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus honored her by doing so, and he mildly rebuked Martha. And I think that's a beautiful, I think, a word picture of what our culture is today, only revved up you know, a thousand times more than back then. So Jesus himself honored and spoke well of a lifestyle that, it, that learns to be still, 
and to be quiet and to be present in the moment rather than wanting to rush to this next better moment. We're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Stone, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking about his book, Holy Noticing the Bible, Your Brain, and the Mindful Space Between Moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Charles Stone. He is senior pastor at West Park Church in London, Ontario, Canada, a multicultural congregation with over a thousand attendees. He also founded Stonewell Ministries to serve pastors and churches through coaching and consulting. We're talking about his book, Holy Noticing the Bible, Your Brain, and the Mindful Space Between Moments. Now, what are the three ways of looking um, that uh, holy noticing involves. I'm sorry, repeat that again. Yeah, I was asking the three ways of looking um, that holy noticing involves. Yes, three kind of dimensions, uh, looking up, looking out, and looking in. Looking up, our relationship with the Lord, looking out, our relationship with others, and looking in, what's really going on inside our mind, our thoughts, and our emotions. So kind of a three-dimensional perspective there. I think for many of us, um, we can imagine uh, living that way when we're in our daily devotions. But in real time, as we're in the car, as we're sitting at our desk, we find it difficult and challenging to do just that, which you're absolutely right, is uh, what we're told to do in Scripture. Um, How did Jesus model and embody this way of life that might help us to see how we might do the same? Well, Jesus was the, the prototype, the perfect example of what it really meant to be holy noticing. Um, just several examples in his life. Jesus noticed the children that wanted to come to him, and the disciples wanted to shoo them away. Jesus noticed the lepers that cried for him. Jesus, Jesus noticed that when a woman who was sick touched his cloak. So you see, Jesus, in, in almost every episode, he was extremely busy. I mean, I mean, people are clamoring for him all the time. But he noticed the small people. He noticed the small things. Of this life of mindful mindfully yet he often pulls away to be with his father so so actually georgine there's there, there's two kind of perspectives there's the state of mindfulness that it do in our quiet time i practice this every day when i have a bible reading and prayer so it's it's in those quiet moments but there's also the trait we actually live this out in daily life. It's not just something we do in the prayer closet. It's something maybe we learn to do in the prayer closet when it's quieter, but it's something we live out. And I actually use an acronym, BREATHE, and each of the letters of that acronym represents a component of mindfulness that we can practice in our devotional time and uh, components that, we, that help us live out uh, the life that Jesus wants us to live. What did you find most challenging about um, attempting to live with that kind of holy noticing? I I use this illustration. I may date myself here a little bit, so (laughs) forgive me for dating myself. But when I was a kid, we had black and white TV. Saturday mornings, I watched Tarzan. Johnny Weissmuller was the Tarzan at the time. He, He swam the Olympics. And Tarzan was friends with all the animals. All the animals liked Tarzan. And the monkeys, when danger was coming, they would jump from tree to tree and from limb to limb, and that would always tell Tarzan that, hey, danger's coming. Well, our minds are kind of like those monkeys. Our minds and our thoughts flip from one thing to the next to the next to the next. 
whether it's having a conversation with somebody or when we're praying and our minds slit to this, to this, to this, and we're off watching a football game in our mind when we start out praying. So probably one of the most difficult things we have to deal with in learning this lifestyle is learning to catch ourselves when our minds wander, kind of like those those monkeys that would, would <laughs> warn cars. And there's actually a term, it's kind of a big term, but it's a helpful term, I think, for your listeners to maybe to understand. It's the term metacognition. Big word, but important word. Metacognition. Cognition is thinking. And that really is really means thinking about your thinking. The Apostle Paul, one of his favorite words was the word mind. He used it over 40 times. So one of the biggest challenges is recognizing when our mind starts wandering. But when we learn the discipline of recognize that, when we practice metacognition, it helps us bring us back to whoever we were talking to, brings us back to our time of prayer, or back to our Bible reading and Bible study. So that's the challenge I faced. It's probably going to be the biggest challenge most people will face if they try to build this into their lives. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things I like about uh, your book, Holy Noticing, is that you intersect brain insight with biblical truth so that we understand that we're not only um, told to do certain practices in Scripture, but there's also evidence in our physical body that there are benefits uh, to being obedient in this and other areas. Yes. I think it was St. Augustine was the first to say this. Calvin also said it, that all truth is God's truth. So what good science, good neuroscience can teach us, it is truth. Now, not truth in the level of scriptural truth, but it's truth. So we're finding out more and more of these, uh, as, as neuroscientists study how the brain works and how the mind works, they're finding all these incredible benefits that mindfulness brings. Now, let me say this. I think it's important to say that we practice mindfulness not because it's all about me and my happiness. We practice it because it's all about God and becoming more Christ-like. So that's the ultimate goal to become more Christ-like. But in doing so, practicing mindfulness, holy noticing, there are these incredible benefits that are, that come to us. And I'd be happy to cover some of those if you'd like for me to. Yeah, please do. Well, uh, three or four come to mind. First of all, they're finding out there are incredible benefits to our body dealing with stress. It helps us deal with stress. They're also finding uh, that there's something called uh, HRA, heart ra- HRV, heart rate variability. Now, usually you think, you know, you got a good, you know, 60 to 70 beats a minute. That's, that's good. That's a good heart rate. But there's a new measure of health, and that is the, the, how the rate of the, your heart rate changes. It's called heart rate variability. They're finding that mindfulness helps create a better HRV sign of health. Another amazing thing, Georgine, is they found out that mindfulness is related to longevity. At the end of our um, of our chromosomes or little end caps, kind of like what uh, what's on our um, shoelaces, the little plastic things on the end of our shoelaces, mm-hmm. and the longer those are, uh, the the uh, it's related to longevity, living longer. Mindfulness helps reduce the rate of the shrinking of those. So there's it's related to to an enhancement of uh, being able to uh, to live longer. So those are some body benefits when it comes to emotions. Uh, what they're finding out is that mindfulness actually can help us with our anxiety and with our depression, in many cases, equal to or better than medication. Now, I'm not one of these kind of guys that says no medication at all if you have some you know, anxious thought, anxiety or depression. It can be very helpful under a good, good doctor's uh, diagnosis. But they're finding out mindfulness is just as effective 
even more effective in some cases than actually using drugs and controlling depression and anxiety. So those are just three or four incredibly positive benefits uh, that mindfulness helps. And one more I might add is sleep. They're finding out that mindfulness helps us sleep better rather than some people have difficult sleeping. I'm still not a great sleeper, but a mindful lifestyle actually results uh, studies have found in better sleep. So a lot of, lot of benefits. Mm. We're talking about the book, Holy Noticing, the Bible, Your Brain, and the Mindful Space Between Moments, uh, focusing on the ancient practice of holy noticing that's been co-opted by others and popularized in the 21st century. You make the point that obedience is an essential component in holy noticing. Yes. The, the acronym I use, BREATHE, and each one of these letters stands for a particular aspect. The last letter, E, stands for the word ENGAGE. So I like to make the distinction that although we learn about it, as I mentioned earlier, we can learn about this and practice it in the prayer closet. The E stands for engage. means to go and live out this life of Christ. Live out and engage the world. It's not just something we do like a monk where we seclude ourselves uh, from living in, in culture and away from others. But a huge component is going out and living it where it's a way of life as we interact with people we love or people that even give us difficulty at church or work or, you know, wherever we have relationships. So it's really living out the life of Christ. Now, you mentioned the breathe model, um, the the last component of it. Can you briefly tell us the the, the other um elements that each letter represents? Sure. Uh, B-R-E-A-T-H, easy word to remember. And really, each one of these letters represents a component to take a look, to examine. B stands for body. R stands for relationships. E stands for your environment. A stands for affect. And that's really another word for emotions. A stands for affect or emotions. T stands for thoughts. H stands for heart. I'll go through and unpack that just briefly. B, to ponder and yield your body, means to check, do a check-in. What's your body state right now? In each of these, in each of these categories, there are anchor verses, scripture verses that, as you practice it, reading these, reciting these, if you memorize them, deepens that particular practice into scripture. So B means checking into your body. R means relationships. How are they doing? E means noticing your environment. Sometimes you're in a place where you can just revel in God's creative work, and sometimes you simply are paying attention to. Like, for example, I live up in Canada, it's cold in the winter, and I, I have my devotional time upstairs, and I have a fan on that has a little heater. Sometimes I'm simply paying attention to that and deepening my attentional abilities because attention is an important quality we need to have to learn and to build relationships. So E, check in your environment. A, you're asking yourself, okay, what's going on inside of me and my emotions? Call them out, name those emotions. T is ask yourself, okay, what's going on inside of my mind? What are my thoughts right now? And H stands for your heart. And I kind of imagine a, the Holy Spirit putting a searchlight on my heart, revealing to me any sin that I might need to confess. But also uh, being still enough before the Lord that we can sense his gentle whispers, his gentle nudgings about maybe we need to go do something for our wife or our kids or our, you know, our pastor or somebody at work. So each one of those, B for body, R relationship, E environment, a ethic, T thoughts, H heart, and then the final E is engage, living it out in day to day living. 
We're talking about holy noticing, and you can learn more, certainly from the book. You go into much greater detail. There's also, you can find more information at holynoticing.com. The Bible, your brain, and the mindful space between moments. For those who embrace this ancient Christian practice, um, what might they anticipate in terms of liberating their uh, worldview in, in living in the moment, making the most of their time, and perhaps seeing God's hand at work more clearly than they might other, uh, otherwise have seen it. Well, Georgine, like in any something, uh, things that we do that are new, there's a little bit of trepidation, a little bit of uncertainty, because the brain does not like uncertainty. It kind of kicks in that fight-flight part of our, of our brain. I would really encourage your listeners to give it a try. And for me, my practice is maybe five days a week, 20 minutes, in my devotional time, but you build up to that. So what I encourage people to do if they're starting out, first of all, realize it's biblical, it's rooted in scripture, it's rooted in Christian history, and it's rooted in good neuroscience. So we have three strong strands uh, that that, that support the efficacy of it. So realize that. Secondly, start small. What I encourage people to do is what they understand is they understand each one of these components like B to practice it maybe a minute or two for a week or for five days. Then the next week, still doing B, R. Now, each one of these has a particular um, uh, exercise with it. For example, R, I have a little um, image for each one, and the R, imagining concentric circles you know, small circle, then those going out. Mm -hmm. Imagine those closest to you in that center circle, and you're reflecting over that relationship. Like, for example, my wife's name is Cheryl. I'll often put her in that center circle in my mind's eye and ask myself, Lord, is is everything right in this relationship? And most of the time it is because we keep short accounts. Sometimes, though, the person that goes in that center circle, the person I'm having difficult with at work, or our neighbor, say, okay, Lord, what should be my next step? So it's envisioning those, those concentric circles and then checking in how are my relationships yeah, doing. Yeah. So start out small and then build from there. Again, the book is titled Holy Noticing. Dr. Stone, thank you so much for talking with us today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. By the way, the book is published by Moody, is available in bookstores. You can also go to the website, holynoticing.com. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, this, of course, is Holy Week. Palm Sunday was yesterday, and today we reflect on the events. We do some holy noticing, if you will, the events leading up to the crucifixion and ultimately the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the most significant series of events in all of human history because it touches on everything in human history. We read in Matthew twenty-one twelve, And Jesus drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the table of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. It was an unheard of scandal. This young rabbi who today had the whole city in a, uh, I should say yesterday, had the whole city in a patriotic uproar, today stormed into the very temple precinct itself and created chaos. There were doves flapping, men were shouting, women were scrambling after the rolling cloins on the ground. This fellow from Galilee once again stirring up trouble. But stirring up trouble is always what happens when Jesus enters the scene 
Monday of Holy Week has its parallel in our individual journey of faith. He comes and priorities are overturned. Assumptions are swept aside. The first thing he did on entering Jerusalem is the first thing he does on entering a life. He goes straight to the temple, to the place where we worship, and he cleans out whatever is not part of God's design. The process is called by many names, sanctification, getting right with God, but the meaning is the same. The recognition that with Jesus in charge, many things we used to do, things we used to say, things we used to want are no longer okay. It's such a common pattern that we've come to expect it, or perhaps we don't really recognize the work that's, that's going on in our interior. And then there's the danger in the Monday's experience. We think we know what things he wants to get rid of, what things he wants us to keep. When my mother was growing up, the list included wearing makeup, watching movies, dancing. Each group, each era has its own expectations. But the hallmark of that Monday in Jerusalem was a surprise. Jesus knew what stood between the people in those days and God, and he knows what stands between people today and God. Astonished is how Mark described people's reactions to that original cleansing, and astonished is how we feel when God's house cleaning, not the one we envisioned, gets underway within us, if we yield to the work of his Holy Spirit. Whatever blocks our relationship with him must go, and he is faithful to do his work in us. What are you doing, Lord, we cry when the cleanser strides in. I'm making myself a temple, he might reply. I appreciated uh, Susanna Foth um, Ackman, who's the author of Mornings with Jesus. She wrote this in reflecting on the events of Monday in Passion Week. I wonder how Jesus felt the Monday after Palm Sunday. Biggest party ever. For the first time, he recognized he was recognized for who he is, the son of the most high God. All of Jerusalem turned out to sing his praises. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna. And then comes Monday, the after party blues. Jesus had a had to recalibrate and refocus. There's no recovery from Palm Sunday. There was just the momentous toil of wrestling with his own will so that he can accomplish the heart-wrenching work his father had asked him to do, the work that he willingly came to do, to save the world, to take on every sin for all of mankind, for all of eternity. How could he fathom it? How could he breathe another breath or take another step? It must have been all too much, costly, cruel, devastating, unless he began to plan another party. He put all the pieces into place, forgiveness, mercy, sacrifice, his life for ours, so that we could attend the never-ending party of basking in the love and hope of the one who loves us most, who loves us most of all. Hmm. I appreciate her putting it in that way. Well, this is a great week to practice a little holy noticing, as my previous guest uh, suggested, so that we are mindful of the events that led up to the crucifixion of Christ that we allow the Holy Spirit full access to our hearts so that as he cleansed the temple, uh, things that might remain in our hearts that no longer belong there because we are followers of him, we might willingly surrender, that we might gain a fresh appreciation for all that he, uh, he did for us, the sacrifice that he made, the mercy that he has extended to us. What a Savior during this holy week on this holy Monday. Taking a look at uh, this week's programming, we're going to reflect a little bit on Holy Week, uh, Monday through Thursday. On Friday, we uh, are, have been graciously given the day by our employer, and so we have the opportunity to celebrate and reflect and uh, 
have some somber time uh, on fr- Good Friday. But on Tuesday, we're going to talk with Steve Cleary. He's the uh, uh, he's speaking on behalf of and I'm not quite sure what his role is. I'll know tomorrow. Uh, Pilgrim's Progress, the movie. Uh, it, I've seen um, bits of it. And in fact, you can go to the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page if you'd like to see a little bit of it. Anyway, it's coming out on the big screen. We'll talk more about that when he joins me. And we'll also talk with Paul Pastor. He uh, wrote an article or there was an article written in Christianity Today about the Bible Project, which originated and is uh, uh, developed right here in our community. We're going to talk more about how this project is bringing people back to God's word. On Wednesday, we'll talk with Dean and Sarah, the author of The Unsaved Christian. Now, is that an oxymoron? Well, the subtitle of the book is Reaching Cultural Christianity with the Gospel. And on Thursday, John Gogger will join us. Kids say the wisest things. Well, sometimes they do. Not always. If you have kids, you know that's true. But sometimes they do. 26 lessons you didn't know your child could teach you. And we get um, get that concept from Jesus himself, who suggests that if we could just be more like children in some aspects. We would do well. So that's our lineup this week. And we'll have some special Good Friday programming for you as well. Well, I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Day, <laughs> the Georgine Rice Day show, a part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.